remind us of the kind of God we serve. You know, I think a lot of people, especially outside the church, they see God as always taking things. God wants to take from something from you. God wants you to give everything to him. And although it's true that God does want us to give, God wants us to give our love to him. You know, in my personal experience, what I see in scripture, God is giving us a whole lot more than God ever has asked of us to give to him. And I would not describe God as the taker. I would describe God as the giver. And this morning, Pastor Ethan, with that theme in mind, is going to be preaching for us. So, Pastor Ethan. Good morning, church. Um, This morning, I want to start you off with a question, what if? That's one of my favorite questions to ask when I first got married. That also was one of the favorite questions my wife liked to ask me at random times in the day. Um, for example, Ethan, would, would you still love me if I was missing one eye? What kind of shallow person do you think I am? <laughs> um, but there are obviously more serious what-if questions, right? In fact, um, as someone who loves history, and Pastor John is not here, if you can pray for him, he went home uh, not feeling well. But Pastor John also is a huge history buff. And if you're a history buff, one of your favorite questions to ask is what if, right? Um, one of my favorite time periods to study is World War II. There's lots of... Uh, uh, there's a lot of good, bad, and in between with World War II. It's a funny period, fun, fun period in history to study. And one of my favorite questions to ask during World War II is, what if? Like, for example, hey, what if we had not, um, America had not chosen to get involved um, and done what they did in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? Like those two cities that uh, our, our, our government and military decided to drop atomic bombs on. What, what, what would have happened if um, thousands of civilians in England had not decided to band together and with their backs to see the allied forces were about to get destroyed um, by the Axis powers and at the last second this fog swept in many people consider that an act of God and by cover of fog and by means of civilian transportation little shipping boats uh, little fishing boats the allied forces lived to fight another day because they were rescued by thousands of civilian vessels under supposedly an act of God, right? So what if that had not happened, right? What if the fog had not been there? What if uh, the uh, German military decided to, to fly a little lower that day? Who knows, right? What if? Um, today we're faced with a very big what if question, right? We're actually going to be talking about the life of a very crucial man in the Christmas story. Uh, unfortunately for him, his life ends uh, pretty soon after the Christmas story. Um, he did not get to have a huge role after the fact of Christ's birth, but we find him in that story. His name is King Herod. Uh, he's the man who orders, and we're going to talk about this morning, he orders the death of innocent children, potentially in the hundreds or thousands um, of Jewish children under the age of two, specifically males. And we're going to talk about this period in history, and we're going to answer this question, is there room for Jesus? Uh, before we get into deep into the message, let's go ahead and read uh, from our text this morning, we're, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, two different chunks there, verses 1 through 8, and then verses 12 to 19. But in Matthew chapter 2, we read these words, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he born the king, that is born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. These are people who are non-Jews. They apparently have studied history and documents, and apparently they have, have seen the prophecy that a star is going to appear above 
the, the city of David. And so they follow, they see this star, they've been following the history, so they come and visit. Okay, they're coming to say, hey, where is, where is Christ? And when Herod the king, verse 3, had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Israel with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately, privately, he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him. Room for Jesus. Um, church, we are going to look at the life of a, at a very quick snapshot of a life, at the life of a man who did something very, very evil, very, very wicked. But I hope by the end of the message, we can recognize that we are faced with the same choice as King Herod. The same question asked of the innkeeper is the same being, question being asked of King Herod in this chapter. When Jesus was born, or about to be born, we find Joseph and Mary looking through the city. Is there room? We need a place to stay. My wife is with child. We need somewhere warm where we can lay our heads down and, and have this birth safely have, occur. And Herod is being asked the same question. Hey, is there room for Jesus? I want you to notice three different aspects of this story. Number one is going to be the opportunity. Number two is the invitation. Number three is the response. Number one, the opportunity. In verse number two of Matthew chapter two, we read, wise men come saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Hey, where is Jesus? We're faced with an opportunity here, right? And then again, later in the passage, he's faced with another opportunity, the same opportunity, verse six, and thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. You're not forgotten. In fact, you're very important, Judah. You're very valuable because, verse 6, out of you shall come a governor that will rule my people, Israel. The opportunity. Letter A, he had an opportunity to open his home to the king. Now, let's backtrack for a second. King Herod, who is he? Um, it's important to know who King Herod is. He actually was placed into power over Judah by the Roman Empire. He actually had Jewish roots, he was, and he was also an Arab. So very unique background to King, Herod, uh, to King Herod. He's also referred into history as Herod the Great. Now, I want to take another pause and say this. Hey, church, it's important for us to know why we believe what we believe, and so I'm going to do a really, really quick history lesson. Okay, so King Herod, also referred to as Herod the Great, is the one who's going to demand, as you're going to read about, the killing of thousands of innocent children. Something interesting to note is that during uh, the documentation by other cultures during this time, you'd expect to hear about, hey, this crazy king ordered the death of a couple thousand children, right? And interesting to note, there is very little, in fact, almost nothing about this occurrence. Now, before you think, well, this is a made-up story fabricated to support um, Christian claims about God, um, let me remind you that this, is, this would not be the only time in history where governments order the slaughter of innocent people and don't talk about it. 
This wouldn't be the first time. Also important to note that if you're writing Roman history and Roman culture, there might be a few things that you try to slide underneath the table. Like, for example, one of your ruling powers saying, hey, I feel like I have a threat to my kingdom, so let's kill babies. Okay, not a good look. And so as a historian at this time, in this ancient time, you might, as a pro, pro-Roman, be like, you know what, let's just, it happened in like a couple villages, let's not talk about it. But there's actually enough historical documentation to suggest that when King Herod ordered the death of these children, he wasn't necessarily the one carrying it out. In fact, we read later that when Joseph and his family are told, hey, you can come back, by told by God, hey, you can come back to Israel, he says, those looking to kill you have died, suggesting that Herod was not just the one who ordered it. He was not just the one carrying it out. There was, as a ruler of an entire area, he probably had another officer put in charge of this task. And we read that there's people in Roman history responsible for the death of innocents, not specifically recorded how they went about that or where they went about that, but it's known that certain governors under the rule of King Herod order the death of innocent people. Probably included that is women and children, right? Specifically the children, the males under two years old, fitting that demographic, hey, there's a threat to my power. It's gonna be a, it's gonna be a boy, it's gonna be a king. He's gonna take over. Okay, we need to kill all those, all those kids under this age. Okay, so this is historically, church, this is historically a possibility, right? Now that I've said that, Herod was a very powerful man, and he actually was so powerful, he, was a char- he, he is known for his massive building projects back, back in this ancient time. And in fact, um, he was so powerful that to reach his level of power, he often stepped over people, all right? He climbed the corporate ladder, so to speak. And in fact, he climbed this corporate ladder so badly that almost nobody liked him. In fact, it is storied about him that near the time of his death, King Herod ordered many, many uh, nobles and, and, and uh, poli- political figures to enter his home so that once, uh, to enter his city that he lived in, so that once he died, <laughs> he figured no one's going to cry. No, no one's going to cry about their jerk boss, right? But if I kill a bunch of these people, then there's going to be mourning in the city because all these famous political leaders have died. And so he orders all he he orders all these special people to come into the city so that when he dies he can have them killed, and then there will be mourning in the city, appropriate enough mourning that he'll count it for himself, right? Now his the guy who came after King Herod annulled that order, so everyone got to go home safe, right? But this is a very very powerful, egotistical, self-filled guy, and he's given an opportunity to open his home to the king. Um, home beating his, his, his kingdom. Um, he has the opportunity to welcome, hey, there is a king who's coming in. He's going to take power. We're not told when, but he's going to take power. And, and instead of curiosity, instead of wondering, how can I possibly transition this king into power, just like all the other kings of ancient day, he perceives him as a threat and says, I need to squash it. Letter B, he's also presented with an opportunity, church, to open his heart. I hope you can see where this is going. We're faced with the same opportunity today, right? Hey, God wants to make an impact on your life. Hey, God wants you to not only make an impact in your heart, but in order to do that, God wants you to welcome, in, welcome him in to do that. 
God's not a sicko. He's not going to force his love on you. Now, once you become his own, God, like a father, will do some things to orchestrate, right? And we know that God has sovereignty, that God has the ability to do whatever he wants to, whenever he wants to do it, however he sees fit. But God is not going to force his love. And that's just, that's just not how God operates. God's not just providing Israel with an opportunity to receive their king. He's, he's, he's providing the leader of Judah at this time, hey, you want to be in my team. Unfortunately, Herod feared Christ as another threat to his power. And church, so church, let us see, here is our opportunity. Jesus wants to make regular changes in our lives to make us more like him. And that's a process of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. And, and, and the issue is, just like Herod, we find obstacles to allowing God to do that. We find obstacles that say, hey, I'm a little too busy for that. I'm a little too busy for God to, to put something for God in my schedule. I'm a little too busy to talk to that person that God wants me to talk to. I'm a little too busy to make that difficult choice, a difficult decision that I know God is asking me to do. It's just going to wreck my plans, my future. And we have to recognize, church, that many times our plans often get in the way of God's purpose. But when we give our plans to God, we find purpose in whatever it is that we're doing in our lives. And so here's our opportunity. Jesus wants to make regular changes in your life, in my life, in the life of people around you to make us more like him in the way that we think, the way that we speak, the way that we act. The opportunity. Number two, the invitation. I want you to look with me at verse number eight. In verse number eight, and he sent them, Herod sends these wise men to Bethlehem and says, go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, Bring me word again, tell me, so that I can go and worship him also. The invitation. Herod, at this moment, church, was presented with an opportunity to worship God. Let's look at who invited him. The invitation came from history. Um, as someone with Jewish heritage, Herod would have known, if he had been paying attention, which he clearly was not, because he was shocked when he heard the star had... <laughs> Had, had arrived in the east and was over the city of, uh, of David, uh, if, if, if Herod had been paying attention to history, he would have noticed, hey, this is, these are all prophetically fulfilling the things that are supposed to happen for Christ to come to earth, for our Messiah, for the Messiah of the Jewish people of the world to come. Church, we too are invited by history to allow God to change our lives. We, don't, we, don't, we do not even have to look at the Bible. You could look at the lives, the life of somebody in this room here. Everyone in this room, those who are believers, have had at least one, and reason tells us more, but have had at least one encounter with God that has dramatically altered or changed their life. Even if that one moment is just God changed my destination from hell to heaven, all of us at some point in our lives have been impacted by the person of Jesus Christ, by the power of God. And we're grateful for that. And so church, we're invited by history to allow God to change us. But letter B, Herod is also specifically invited from men. We find these wise men enter into his life saying, hey, we're here and we're here to meet the king. 
Wow. Herod had the opportunity of a lifetime to be the ruling power who welcomes the king of the world into his heart and home. What an opportunity. And now we might think here, what a stupid idiot (laughs) to refuse that kind of offer. And yet, we also find ourselves in the same boat. Church, we know that God does good things with the least of people. We know God does mighty things with, as the scriptures say, the least of these. We know that. We even say we want it for ourselves. But when it comes down to it, sometimes the testimony even of those around us isn't enough to change our hearts. And so let us see. He receives an invitation from God. God is the one orchestrating this situation. God is the one orchestrating this timeline. God has sent his son to earth to die for the souls of men. Why? Because God loves us. He wants to provide a way, an even better way than before, to connect with God on a very deeply personal level. God is literally handing this to Herod on a silver platter. Hey, you're hearing from wise men that this king who's come is going, he's here. And Herod even goes a step farther to, he inquires about it. And then look at verse eight, he tells him, hey, tell me more. And then when you come back, well, go, go find out. Then when you come back, tell me more so that I can worship him. Now, in this story, it's no surprise, Herod is saying that deceitfully. But at any point in time, church, Herod could have changed his mind, right? The what ifs, what if Herod had changed his mind? What if during that time, of the wise men being away. Remember, the wise men didn't find Jesus as an infant. They found him as a toddler. He had done a little bit of growing up. Herod had all that time to change. You know what? I'm going to change my perspective about this young, this, young, this young child born to a lowly family. He had all that time. And still, he did not allow God to change his heart. And I wonder, church, today, if there's some of us who have looked at the history in the Bible, who have looked at the history of the lives of people around us, and who have specifically known from God, maybe perhaps, that, hey, I want to do something with you. I want to do something great in your life. And you want me to do something great with your life. But in order for that to happen, you've got to give up some things. You've got to be willing to change. And, and I wonder if some of us have, at least in our past, missed out and have some what ifs. What if I had surrendered? What if I had chosen? What if? Letter D, our invitation is to surrender the direction of our lives to Christ, trusting in his character and his testimony. Church, this morning, I want you to think about this fact that we have a greater opportunity than Herod ever had. Herod ever had. Ever had. We have God's word providing us with access to opportunities daily, moment by moment, that God wants to do something in our life just by reading his word. We have social media. And for many of you, you might follow, you know, uh, whether it's following the church or other church accounts or, or, or something that might, might post a Bible or a spiritual inspirational quote in your feed every day. But hey, we have access to God trying to, God has more touch points with us than ever. I mean, barring when he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, we have more touch points with God than ever before. And yet, many of us find ourselves 
distant from him and far away. And why is that? We've often, number one, recognized the opportunity, but number two, we have not, we're, not, we're often not ready to receive that invitation yet. We've, we're often ready to be like, you know what? Um, <laughs> it's like that birthday party for the person that you really don't want to go there. Oh, I, I, oh, I forgot it. Sorry. Oh, I lost it. Sorry, I totally missed it. Uh, I didn't even see it in the mail. You're lying. Um, we do that with God. We misplace God's mail. There's an opportunity. There's an invitation. And then number three, and this is where we're going to spend the majority of the rest of our time this morning, there is a response. And for Herod, uh, the response is a very sad one. In verse number 12, I'm sorry, verse number 16, Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coast thereof from two years and old, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Church, here's the funny thing. When God, when God's purpose interrupts our plans, we start conniving. We start saying, wait, how can I make this go back to the original direction I was trying to go in? God's intentions aren't matching my direction. So something needs to change here, and it's not going to be my direction. It's going to be the intentions. I'm going to shift that from God to me, and then we break the wheel. Uh, Herod, instead of recognizing, hey, maybe you could have recognized this as, oh, wait, why are they leaving? Oh, because God spoke to them? Ding. Okay. Instead, Herod said, what, God spoke to them? I'm going to do something about that. And he issues an order to kill babies, young boys, age of two and under. This is a very sad time in Israel's history. In fact, there's a prophecy written in Jeremiah that comes true in this passage of scripture. And there was, find the verse here. And there was weeping. In Ramah, there was heard, a, verse 18, in Ramah, was there a great, a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning. There's sorrow here. Why? And Rachel, the wife of Jacob, we are assuming that this is referring to the women in this area, the Jewish women of this area, and Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. No one ever wants to be on the bad end of a prophecy. And yet, that's where Herod finds himself. He's on the wrong end of a terribly prophetic statement. And another what if, and as a Bible scholar, I like asking this question and wondering, hey, I wonder how God would work this out. You know, there's been times in history where God has invited himself into the lives of men, and men have denied him. Matthew, the book of Matthew, he invites himself into the lives of the Jewish people and says, hey, I'm ready to establish my kingdom. So this is after this time in history. He invites himself as an adult and says, I'm going to, I want to establish my kingdom on earth. But because the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, decided to consider Jesus um, apostate, he's a heretic, we need to kill him, a criminal, a religious political criminal, Jesus said, he said these words to those, to those men, the religious leaders. He said, you have shut up the kingdom of heaven from the hearts of men the wrong side of a prophetic statement. Church, let it never be said that we knowingly and willingly 
chose to be on the wrong end of a biblical truth. There's biblical truth that tells us that God is with us and that God is for us <laughs> as, and he rewards us as long as he gives us power and strength and blessing as long as we follow his will. God gives us the equipping to complete his will. And then the opposite truth is true, right? If there are times where God says, hey, look, at some point, if you are going against me for so long, I might just say it's time to take you home. You're doing a lot of damage. God tells us that he is open to doing that in his word. Don't be on the wrong end of a promise in scripture. Here's response, letter A, he chose fear instead of faith. As I mentioned earlier, Herod was a very powerful ruler. He did a lot of great things. But often, as many of us who are talented, uh, many of us in this, in this room who are uh, gifted at, at, at many things, whether that's art, um, communication, uh, business, whatever the case may be, sometimes we allow our strengths to get the better of us, right? In other words, we start identifying ourselves by our strengths. And here, Herod has chosen to build his identity off of all of his accomplishments. I'm this powerful ruler. I am literally called in history, I'm referred to in history as Herod the Great. I have built massive architectural structures for my people. At this time and age, that was, a, that was no small thing, considering the kind of tools and equipment they had available to themselves. And he chose to look at this little boy this little Jesus boy, and he chose fear. Now, there's nothing wrong with fear, church. In fact, in and of itself, in fact, fear is an opportunity. You can look at it this way. Fear is an opportunity to grow our faith, right? Fear is an opportunity for me to trust God more in whatever I'm afraid of. But instead of choosing faith, he chose to live in that fear. And we see the result of it. He orders this killing. Letter B, he chose selfish pride instead of submissive purpose. Church, at some point, Herod had acknowledged that at some point, in some way, shape, or form, this young boy is going to take power from me. I'm going to lose it. It's going to be gone. And instead of recognizing that this was God and, this is, and that this was a good thing, recognizing, hey, God... God's purpose is greater than Herod's plans. God's purpose is greater than our plans. He decided, not worth it. The surrender and what could possibly happen is, is worth less to me than the life that I'm trying to build for myself. Church, many of us find ourselves in that boat where we do want God to do something in our marriage. We do want God to do something with our kids. We do want God to do something with our family, but it's just so hard to break away from those opportunities you created for ourselves. It breaks my heart when I see families who in the past have said, hey, I, I, I want this for my family. I want, I want good things. I want a stronger marriage. I want my kids to love God. And then they make choices that tell you otherwise. And it's not that we doubt that they want God to impact their life. We just recognize that they've just dug themselves to this hole that they're unwilling to let God pull them out of. God, I can fix this. Just give me time. Often, church, we choose selfish pride instead of submissive purpose. 
King Herod would not have been submitting just to submit, right? He's submitting because he knows that whatever kingdom that this boy, that this God-man is going to establish, it's going to be a great one. It's going to be a one where there is peace and prosperity. It's just not going to be on his shoulders. And to King Herod, it wasn't worth that church. Going back to what I talked about from the about the invitation, you could look at the history in the Bible. You could his, look at the history, the testimony of the lives of people around you. Church, what God has on the other side of submission is amazing. It's not always material riches. In fact, I would argue it's rarely ever material riches. But I can promise you this, they are very valuable. Uh, there's nothing more valuable than, to me than seeing people take their life and give it to God and then choose to do that every day and God does something amazing with them. Um, I remember, and, and Pastor Russ actually went to uh, the school I went to back uh, for college and he, he went there and he, and he met a student there, uh, JB. And uh, I remember I met, I, Russ said, hey, took a piece of me. I got a picture of my phone. He says, hey, JB says hi. And he hasn't wouldn't know JB. He's, uh, if you can believe this, he's a Filipino who's actually, Filipino guy taller than me. It's great. Uh, and uh, I met this kid when he was like, you know, four foot nothing in sixth grade, seventh grade. And uh, very like alert, very alive, like very, you know, classic sixth grade guy, really, really, really nice kid. And I remember asking him um, as a college student, talking to middle school, hey, like what, hey man, this is really great. You're here playing for a basketball tournament. So what do you want to do with your life? You know, asking sixth grade, what do you want to do with your life? Uh, eat, eat candy and play video games, yes. Uh, but I remember staying in contact with JB from the few years that I knew him back in college. And then <laughs> I leave college and I followed him, I followed him on social media, keep up once in a while, once in a while, send him, maybe one, once, you know, once every two, three years, I send a message to him on social media. And then I get this picture from Pastor Russ saying, hey, JB says hi. I'm like, oh, that's great. Tell him I love that guy. And Russ told me, oh, yeah, he's in his, he's in his, uh, he's, he's taking his master's at ministry school. Now, I'm not saying I had any part in that. <laughs> I, got to, I get to be a witness. But church, like, that, that fuels me. I love watching people live for God. I love watching people who are far from God come back to him. I love pe watching people who are not of God and they become his. That's amazing. And that is a story of many people in this room here. It doesn't happen if we choose selfish pride over a submissive purpose. Church, the story of that kid I just told you about, JB, what if he had not chosen to submit to God? He's going to a Bible college, starting to be a pastor. There's not very many good paying jobs for a smart young man like him, right? Like if with a pastor's degree, this is not going to happen. You're, it's ministry. It's hard work, like anything else. But it's hard work with people, which makes it that much more difficult, okay? And instead of King Herod choosing to submit with the purpose of God's going to do something great, instead he says, it's not worth it to me. Let us see. We're almost done. Herod chose to see Jesus as a taker instead of a giver. God's going to take my kingdom from me. I don't want that. In this time period, it was known, it was not unusual for when a ruling power took over, 
you kill off his family and counselors. Uh, Herod choosing fear over faith, he took the initiative. He was a very uh, go-get-em guy. All right, instead of killing me, I'm going to kill you. And he chose to see Jesus as someone who is going to take something so precious and valuable to, from him instead of seeing God, this is God, come to earth and going to, he's going to give us something incredible and something beautiful. And church, that's where we are today. Is there room in your life for God to shift your direction? Is there room in your, your heart and in my heart for God to change the way that we feel or think about somebody or something. The hardest part about surrendering to God is knowing that some way, shape, or form, we have to give up something else. You want to show up Sunday morning, teenagers in this room? I know you gave up at least an hour of sleep just to be here. Hopefully your parents didn't have to completely drag you out of bed, but I know that's probably you know what happened for a lot of you. right? You had to sacrifice sleep in order to be here this morning. Some of you adults who work lots of hours during the week had to sacrifice sleep in order to be here this morning. Amen. <laughs> in order for me to demonstrate my love to God, one of the things that I do is I give. And for some of us, we have to recognize that in order for me to know that I gave God of my finances, I made that, I made that gift he had to take something from me. He had to take, in order for God to get the money from me, he had to take it from me. And you, could, you could honestly look at it that way. God's taking this from me. Ugh. My finances are hurting. This is not a message I'm giving, by the way. That's Pastor Russ's job, not mine. Uh, <laughs> but instead, I want to give this to God, and I know he's going to do something with it. Church, you've been doing that, by the way. You've been giving. And you've been giving, why? Because while it might be a sacrifice, especially during these post-COVID times, you have seen the results of giving to God. In fact, some of you in this room are here because you saw what God was doing with what his church was giving. Church, when God asks us to do a task for him, to submit or surrender something to him. We have to recognize that he's not doing it to take something from us, although inevitably that is a way you could look at it, God taking something from us. No, God wants to give us something in return. I would say this. He is in the business of exchanging what is good for what is best. Amen? God always wants to take the bad and turn it for the good. And he wants to take that good and turn it into something better, best, beautiful. That is how God operates. Letter Dean, here's our response. The response that we are being encouraged to take by God's word is to recognize that God works all things together for his good. He's in the business of taking pain and turning it into purpose. Amen? Several families in this room have experienced pain. And God wants to take that and turn it into purpose, if for nobody else in the room, for you. He's in the business of taking tragedies and turning them somehow, some way, some shape, some form into a triumph. That's how God works. He holds the lives of his saints 
most precious. Over anything else in the vast universe that God has created, he cares about you and me. God has always made a way. And how can we be sure? He's done it before. He's done it throughout scriptures. He's done it in the lives of your friends, family members, church family. And he wants to do it for you too. In fact, he's probably done it at some point in your past. Church, we have to recognize that God wants to work all things together for good. Why? Because if we don't, we view God, we view this Savior King, Jesus, as a taker instead of a giver. God wants to take your sacrifice and turn it into something beautiful. God wants to take our messy lives and construct it into a work of art called his plan and his purpose. And so today, church, I want to leave you with this. God is acutely aware of our pains, our losses, and our trials. That is the Christian life, accepting that reality. But is there room in your heart, is there room in your life for you to allow God to take that and turn it into something valuable, into something precious, into something purposeful that impacts not just your life, but the lives of people around you and points everyone to him. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask ourselves this question, is there room in our heart? Do I have space in my life to invite you in and change me? Do I have the humility to recognize that I don't have it all together and that I need someone more powerful, more, more wise, more knowledgeable than I ever could be? Do I need that person in charge of my life? God, I pray for those who do not know you, for those who do not believe in you yet. I pray that today, the truth about God wanting to change our lives for the better through our humble, willing sacrifice, I pray that that invitation to them is enough for them to choose to follow you and believe in you today. I pray for those who are far from you, who are questioning, who are doubting, who are angry or anxious. I pray that this morning, they were reminded that you have been good before. You promised that you will be good. And God, you are good in the here and now. God, for those who are actively pursuing after you, we pray that you would encourage them to keep in the fight, that they would stay in the race, that they would remember that you're a God who works all things together for your good, yes, but for our good as well. I pray that it would be said of Meriden Hills Baptist Church, our community, our guests, our families here, that we are people who pursue after you, not pain-free, but purpose-filled, knowing that whatever happens in our lives, God, you're not taking things from us. You want to give us a bigger, brighter future than we could possibly imagine for ourselves and our loved ones. We love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. I have a few announcements I'd like to make. The youth group has some Christmas parties coming up. December 15th, that's this coming Friday, is for the high school. And December 20th is the middle school Christmas party. So talk with Pastor Ethan about both of those. 
The rest of us, adults, 18 and older, have our own Christmas party on the 21st. I currently have 50 people signed up for the adult Christmas party. If you have not signed up, either you didn't sign up in the lobby or you did not text me in response to that Clearstream message, general announcement I sent out last week, and you want to go, I can probably swing it for about five to ten more. Uh, so if that's you, either as a single person or as a couple, you and your spouse, or you want to bring a friend with you, a parent or a friend, doesn't matter, let me know today, please. Text me or chat with me in the lobby.